Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Yeah, you know, I, I just, I've, I've been following kind of the ongoing dialogue with strength and within like kind of the endurance world and like where that fits. And it seems like there's kind of two camps there, but uh, I think the, that the evidence is getting a little more compelling for some form of strength work with, with that sort of stuff. So it'll be kind of cool to dive into some of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's at least two camps, you know, and, and, um, mm-hmm. and it's hard to say which one I fall into. I mean, I'm a, uh, weightlifting coach primarily who's, uh, an athlete in other sports and, and, uh, uh, wished I'd discovered, you know, like Olympic weightlifting and, and even kettlebells, mm-hmm. you know, when I was young. So I, I think it would have made a difference. Uh, not, maybe in my case as a non-elite, uh, so far from non-elite, <laughs> but it might've, uh, uh, you know, it might've made some in- improvements and, uh, you know, my, uh, uh, longevity and, uh, uh, injury prevention and so forth. And so, which is kind of the big angle I come at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, obviously if it prevents an injury, you kind of keep that consistency metric in place where if you're hurt, you can't really do that. So very effectively. So I think there's a, a big component there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so now you've been, did you, uh, is your wife an ultra runner? She is. Yeah. She just did uh, the Western States 100. Mm-hmm. Well, I, saw, I saw a bitter and I was wondering if that was <laughs> a, a sibling or a wife. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah she, my friend she, Addie was running that, so. Yeah, that's right. I saw that Addie was on there. And I guess I did know that she had been working with you guys over in Boulder. So um, that'd be cool. Uh, maybe we'll try to get her on as a guest down the road if she's open to it. Oh, yeah. I, she'd totally be into it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Addie. Awesome. And, uh, I was thinking of somebody else for you guys today. Um, I'm blanking on it at the moment. It'll come to me. I'll blurt it out. This is my, my demo. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but Western oh, States is... You know, you know Hunter... Uh, uh, now I am blanking on his last name for real. Hunter, uh, the uh, 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 obstacle course racer. Oh, McIntyre? McIntyre, yeah. So I've been yeah. working with him the last few weeks, uh, getting his Olympic lifting up for the, uh, for the CrossFit Games. Uh-huh. So he got a wild card, you may have heard, uh, as a, a non-crossfitter to, you know, go in and challenge the, you know, the, the fittest people in the world as a, as a, from his, from his sport. Right. So, uh-huh. but he'd be, a, he'd be a good guy to have on if you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that he would be great. He's got, he's got, a- he's definitely an outlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's been interesting. I think uh, like when we started the podcast, uh, I guess like, I, we didn't necessarily have like a specific route we wanted to go, although I think our assumption was we'd probably interview more athletes than anything. And uh, we, we certainly interview athletes from time to time, but they tend to be the minority of our guests. So um, it's been interesting to kind of just let it kind of take its spin and whatever angle it's gone. And I think we'll probably branch out and, and add a, a wider variety of people as we you know, go through more and more episodes. Uh, but yeah, Hunter would be, would be an awesome guest to have on. I've listened to a few of his other podcasts with some other, and on some other platforms. And so it was an interesting listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, kind of giving me a primer on his, uh, uh, social media, uh, blitz, uh, to, to kind of, uh, grab that wild card opportunity. So. Yeah. yeah. Do you know how that works? Is it uh, I have no idea. Yeah, because I always knew he was in into the obstacle course stuff, but then I did see on his Instagram page that he was going to be doing the CrossFit games, so I thought uh, that was kind of cool. Yeah, well, I think uh, f from what I know, and this may not be entirely accurate, uh, uh, the, the CrossFit uh, HQ uh, – wanted to see wanted to give people in other sports an opportunity to come in as non-crossfitters to see how they stacked up against crossfitters so there's mm -hmm. uh you know I, I suppose you could think of it along the lines of well who can what pro can we humiliate from another yeah. sport <laughs> um, and and i think uh uh you know, Hunter was just up for that challenge, you know, and so he, he, uh, you know, he wants to lock horns with people who perceive themselves to be the best in the world and, and uh, see how he fares. And I think that's, that's legit. And so I think that was the case he was trying to make to, you know, that he actually deserved having that shot, if anybody deserved having that shot. And, and so I, I like that. Um, I like that attitude. I thought, you know, given how long he's been a pro athlete and uh, he's kind of, I, I don't, I mean, I have other uh, friends, Nell Rojas, you may uh, know, uh, or her dad, Rick. Uh, Rick was uh, the first Boulder Boulder winner back in 1979, uh, the 10K, and uh, it was a world champion in the 15K twice, I think. And Nell's his daughter, and she just won grandma's last weekend. Oh, wow. In 20, 28 and change, it was her second marathon. She ran a 31 at uh, the CIM last year. And then they changed the qualifier for, uh, for trials. And so she had to run a sub uh, 39, I think, and ran, or, or 29, I think. She ran a 228. It was pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and so where was, oh, so, uh, uh, now, now, now I don't. Now I lost my train of thought. We were talking about uh, Hunter, and uh, we were talking about Hunter there, and uh, uh, by the way, oh, uh, sorry. I think just spe specializing in, I guess, kind of the angle. I think we were heading down was. Uh, yeah, I got it. I got switching it. Switching sports. <laughs> She's also tried her hand successfully, very successfully at. Uh, obstacle course racing and uh uh another runner friend of hers nicole miracle has uh worked with me a bit uh over the years uh, not at present nell's uh trained her a bit over the years she has her own gym concern now yeah. and, uh, and uh but 
so in that in that domain of uh, obstacle course racing, I'm not I'm not uh, super uh, uh, fluent in who's who's who, but Hunter apparently has dominated the sport uh, on the male side for uh, for quite a bit. So I think this is a good challenge for him, the CrossFit Games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know it's interesting to kind of you know in a like a sport like I do too, where you know ultra marathon is such a kind of catch-all term. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. You can have like. 50 kilometer races that are at 10,000 plus feet going through up and down mountains and then have a six day event that's on a, on a 400 meter track and they're all kind of under the same umbrella and, yeah. you know, specializing in, I mean, those are definitely the polar opposites within the sport, but, you know, specializing in any one area of ultra running is, I guess, kind of difficult to do. So like you find, you see a lot of crossover, but then you also can get yourself exposed pretty quickly if you didn't train specifically for the event and, you know, a handful of other guys or gals did. And uh, I think that's one of the things you've seen the most in the last few years with the extreme endurance side of things is just the, the growth is enough now where you can't just really, you know, go for a couple long runs and show up at any race and compete. You kind of have to really dive into the course specifics and all that other stuff too. And it makes it interesting. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, also along those lines, it's, um, uh, you know, the mental training has, has uh, I think it's a lot more available now that, uh, you know, grit and being able to uh, act I, like I was, uh, where I was going with that really was, uh, uh, Addie just finished up her master's degree in um, sports psychology. And I think that's really, mm -hmm. that experience has really fueled her, uh, uh, ascent in the ultra uh, field. You know, she did. She, you know, she just exploded when she started mountain trail running, and had been thinking about giving up the sport of running altogether. And just kind of somebody said, "Ah, come out and do Loon Mountain and see what happens." And she won it. You know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think she's really parlayed that sports life. So that might be a hook too for you guys. You know, if, if you're thinking about having her on, I mean, she can talk very articulately about that. Yeah, that'd be an awesome topic because I know I always think about that, especially when it comes to some of the longer hundred mile plus type distance races where it's like you're even if you break the course record, like your average pace is oftentimes kind of even slower than an easy run day. So right. at that point, from just a systems training approach, like you're doing overspeed training essentially on almost everything you do. And that's just so different from like the 5k where, you know, you might hit overspeed training for like 10, 20% of your workouts. Right. Uh, and then at that point, it's almost like it's less about the physical component of keeping pace or keeping intensity where you want it as much as it is staying focused enough to kind of convince yourself you can. <laughs> and right. then, so one of the things I'll say sometimes with my coaching clients is when they'll be asking about like specific workouts and things and I'm, I tell them, well, what we're trying to kind of do here is find the workout that's going to have you most mentally confident from miles 80 to 100, because that's probably going to be the one that's going to, you know, yeah, that's going to be the point where you need to kind of make a decision of how bad you want to kind of push and make up those extra minutes that you can with staying focused. And it's just the, the, the running variables are all still there, like they would be in almost any other running event, but they just, I think, skew a little differently as to where the priorities end up in yeah. terms of kind of how you, you plan it all out, but. Yeah, well, you know, uh, she and Courtney uh, Dewalter have become friends too. And I think she actually got Courtney to 
uh, allow her to interview her for uh, one of her sports side classes. But oh, cool! Yeah, Courtney's. I, I mean, I I don't know her personally. I mean, we're we're friends on Facebook, but you know, uh, I became aware of her maybe three years ago. I forget what race it was that popped up on my news feed, and it was just like, holy crap! You know, this is insane. And so read a little bit more about her, and she was still teaching at the time. And uh, coincidentally, I'm not, I'm not claiming any responsibility for any of this whatsoever, but uh, coincidentally, my, uh, my mother uh, passed away a couple years ago. And uh, I was in Tennessee kind of handling the estate affairs. And I had become, I'd corresponded a little bit with, uh, uh, with Lazarus Lake, who does the, the Barclays and the backyard and and he was only about an hour from where my mom lived. And so uh, I asked him if I could come down and visit. And so we hung out for a little bit. And I met the dogs and mm -hmm. we did a, a five-mile walk. And I, and, and I just sort of kind of picked his brain and, and uh, about, you know, why he does, you know, the hillbilly philosopher, right? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he's a great guy. And he was very generous and uh, to have me there. And, and uh I, 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 I said, well, have you heard of this Courtney Dewalter? He goes, no, no. I said, man, I'm going to send you some stuff. You've got to get her down here for at least the backyard, you know? And so it was, it was a year and a half or two later. And I, I, I don't think the conversation had any impact on that. I think her performance had impact on that. And, and uh, everybody was noticing at that point, but man, what a beast she is. Yeah, And I think, you know, what interests me, and this is where I kind of try to coach my athletes in any, in the weight room, my weightlifters who are, you know, competing and, uh, and the runners who come in who are trying to get better is that, you know, be, I think this is where Courtney, I may be wrong, but this is my take on it is I think where Courtney comes from is from this, she's been through about everything. I think this is speaks to your like, how do I maintain focus? I think uh, uh, she's been she's been through everything, right? She's pretty much dealt with every adversity that you could possibly come up with in an ultra, in one way, shape, or form. And she just runs out of curiosity. It's like, what can I do? Mm -hmm. What can I get out of myself? And it's like it's like this fearless space, you know. Now I don't know what goes on in her head, but it seems like it seems like that's to me uh, a great place to be as an ultra person. It's like, well, what can I do? And can I keep going? And it's kind of, you're kind of constantly answering that question uh, through your actions. What what can I do? And I think that's you know, and it just it just uh, like I said, I might be totally wrong, but that that seems to me to be a really powerful place to be as an endurance athlete. And you know, Mark Cora writing you know uh, you know his his uh, psychobiological model of fatigue is kind of. I think in that domain too, it's like it's mind over matter. You know, it's like the perception of the fatigue is is key. It's like so if you don't, there's that old saying, if you don't mind, it don't matter. But it's maybe not quite that simple. But but mm -hmm. uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, Courtney's definitely one of the more fascinating individuals in the sport. And I think like one of the things I find interesting about her is. I kind of I've been following her basically since she kind of started. She you know, she ran a few kind of more or less local races when she first got started and kind of like popped up on the scene a bit. Um, yeah. 
and then then like the thing that really caught my attention was she didn't really seem to have any rhyme or reason as to like when or what she would race like she would do everything from these timed events up to these super mountainous like 200 plus milers and um you know she's like some of the folks in the sport that i really love to follow are the guys and gals who are able to kind of cross over from those disciplines and then at her level too where you know she's hit i think just shy of 160 miles in 24 hours which is yeah, about as fast as you're going to see. I mean, the world record's 163. That was just recently broken. Um, but then, you know, she'll go out to these 200-mile mountain courses. She, last year at Western States, ran like, what was it, like 17.26, which is now it's the right. third fastest time in the history of the course. But when you put it into perspective, like the weather last year was significantly hotter than it was this year or the year the course record was broken. So, like, the fact that she was able to do it on a year like that is in on such a variety of things are, are really interesting. And then on top of it all, she seems like from a personality standpoint to have changed zero. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> the exact right. same person. And I, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, she certainly changed the amount of notoriety she has coming her way. Uh, so I, you know, you think that that would maybe at least change her psyche a little bit when it comes right. to, you know, she walks up to, you know, pick up her bib at Western States now and there's a crowd of people following her. People want to talk to her. People want to see what she's up to. People want to interview her. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't seem to phase her at all. It seemed to change her. And I think that's really big in a sport where there's that huge mental component. If you can kind of keep that, that kind of steady, consistent attitude, that's both equally hard to do as well as something worth appreciating when you see someone who's able to do it. Yeah. I, uh, what I recall most from her interview on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast was her, I think he asked her, you know, why do you pick the things you pick to do? And she goes, Oh, I just get a bee in my bonnet, which, uh, <laughs> so, and he's you know, her good. Is it Minnesota where she's from or Wisconsin? Or, but it, it's uh, one of those upper Midwest uh-huh. kind of, you know, folksy that she is just quite natural for her. You know, she gets a bee in her bonnet and she goes out and, does something with it, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's really cool. I mean, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I deal with a lot of, uh, you know, I've dealt with a lot of post-collegiate pros and I've dealt with a lot of, you know, recreational athletes and I've dealt with a lot of high school athletes who are looking to go to, uh, college and, and sometimes they hit that, they hit that point where they just, kind of don't want to do it anymore and i i uh try not to be the hard-ass coach and this goes back to when i grew up with hard-ass coaches and it's like look mm-hmm. you know it's uh it's something you've got to want to do and if you don't want to do it it's it's bolder it's a nice day go for a hike go yeah. pick some flowers <laughs> you know go do something that you want to do and, and then decide if you want to come back and do this tomorrow you know but I, I think that that's the big thing with her and, and any really good athlete is that, you know, they want to do whatever it is that they're doing bad enough that they can push through those rough spots, you know, uh, uh, and uh, it, it, you know, there's ditch digging in every sport, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's the glamour aspects of it. Everybody loves to win. Everybody likes to do well and everybody loves a good training session, but, I forget what the actual percentage is, but it's like the, what's it called? The regression to the mean, you know, for 
every like every seven or eight days you'll have a good workout and you'll have a bad workout and the other six are just going to be put punch in the clock you know and mm -hmm. and so if you're only living for good workouts you're in for a disappointment because you better only do one a week <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah. Yeah, there's a bad one coming up yeah. yeah and you know that's actually another interesting topic too just like the i guess it's the fatigue of the support of the sport where you you, you got to want it really bad to get that last like percentage or whatever it ends up being and uh i think that's really interesting within the endurance world because especially at the the, the, the pointy end of the spear, they just tend to be people who are like incredibly hardworking, driven individuals by nature. So they get to this point where they don't want it anymore. And it's almost like a sense of failure in their mind, I think, where they're like, oh, I, you know, I'm not mentally strong enough to, to keep. So they don't want to admit that. And that they maybe stick to it, even though they hate it at that point. And I, I think I see that, see that. I wouldn't say often, but you see it often enough where you sense there could be a kind of an interesting dynamic between, uh, I guess you could call it strong willed stubbornness and, uh, the need for a change of direction or at least a different, a different way of viewing things maybe. Yeah. Now are we recording recording or is this just, uh, yeah. Oh, so, sorry. I, I forgot to, I forgot to, to mention Sean, Sean was just running a little late. He had, uh, I think okay. we, he had it on his calendar a little differently than I did. I think that might've been my mistake, but I do have a recording. So, I mean, I can, I can take this out if you want, but I, I think yeah. some of it's been kind of cool. Uh, let's look at this as a warm up, and maybe- Sure, there you go. <laughs> a little yeah. primer. <laughs> yeah, because I, uh, it takes me a little bit to warm up. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty quiet guy by nature, but uh, anybody who knows me will tell you that once I get going, it's hard to shut me up. And so, uh, it's a good warm up, and, and these are but these are all things that uh, I'm interested in talking mm -hmm. about. And then there's the nutrition side of yeah. it too. I uh, I was a fat kid, you know, growing up, and uh, uh, lost weight and played sports in high school. Got fat again in college. Lost weight on a low carb diet. Uh, did endurance sports for a while. Weightlifting for a while uh, as a master and. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, what you guys are now, are you, are you pure carnivore or do you uh, throw in a little bit of, of uh, vegetable matter from forage as uh, Ballinger says? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess historically I was, his, I've, my, I've always kind of, well, I shouldn't say always, but for the better part of the last eight years, I've been some form of kind of a high fat, low carb diet. And I've, yeah. I've certainly kind of evolved that through just trial and error and playing around with some things. And I would say like the majority of my eight years within that realm, it was kind of heavier on the plants and then like the meats and stuff. I mean, from a volume standpoint, not necessarily a caloric standpoint. Yeah. And, but the last year or so I've kind of skewed the other direction where now I guess if you're going to put a label on it, it would probably be like meat based diet or animal product based diet. So, you know, for me, it's always been like, the context is everything. So, and I think this is actually one of the biggest confusing points for folks is we take these wide sweeping defining words like endurance, sports, performance, and then we don't really break it down to the specifics that are required to really tie like an ideal nutritional strategy to it. Um, yeah. You know, you get in a conversation with folks and they'll be like, well, you need carbs for endurance. And 
first thing I usually ask is, well, what, what do you mean by need? Like, do you need them to finish an endurance event? So it's like, no, you don't need them to finish an endurance event. The question could be, do you need them to reach peak potential? And then that brings up another question of how much do you need, which brings up another question of, well, what distance are you training for? Because you'd be hard pressed to find someone that would argue that the systems of training are going to be mapped similar for someone competing at the the 10 K at the Olympic level versus someone training for a hundred miler in the mountains. And, you know, at that point, I think once you start breaking it down to that, it makes a little more sense in the terms of kind of like what kind of tools you have, or I guess maybe what approaches belong at the table for conversation, which is versus which ones kind of don't deserve a seat or, um, but yeah. So for me personally, like, you know, my main focus the last few years has primarily been on events that are hundred miles or further. Uh, I'll do some shorter stuff than that, but usually they're not a races. Um, I'm not going to necessarily stick with that. I think I'll probably do some structured buildups for some shorter events, like shorter being kind of 50 K to hundred K in distance uh, in the, in the future. But you know, when I'm focusing on things that are hundred miles and further, that's when I can start to uh, skew things closer and closer to the, that, lower carb that's a little closer to kind of like the classical ketogenic approach versus what I've done historically, which I would call kind of a periodized uh, carbohydrate cycling approach where I'll go super low during certain points of the year or during certain recovery days or recovery blocks. And I'll skew them upwards a little bit during some of the higher, more intense phases of training where I'll be hitting, you know, 15, 20 hours a week worth of you know, running, mobility work, strength work, and things like that. So, um, you know, that's another interesting thing I always find is like people are, they'll ask me, well, what do you eat in a day? Because they want to put, they want to put their finger on exactly what I'm doing. Right. And I'm trying to think, well, which day are they asking about? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> are they asking about the day after a 100-mile race? Are they asking about the 100-mile race? Or are they asking about that peak building week? Uh, and it all kind of, maps differently depending on that so um and and then if you even start to dive in even further uh you know i may have confused more people with this too is sometimes i'll, I'll describe my diet in the ser- in terms of like percentage of what i'm taking in from carbohydrates fats and proteins so sometimes i'll say during peak training i'll be taking you know upwards of 20 plus percent and from carbohydrate, which is relatively low compared to what you're going to see in most kind of endurance nutrition protocols with a lab kit for, you know, 60, 70% of your intake to come from carbohydrate. And uh, 20% though could seem high to someone who's followed like a classic ketogenic protocol. Right. But then when I kind of describe what's going on that day, that makes a little more sense to them where it's like, if I'm going to ramp my carbohydrate consumption up to that 20 ish percent uh, metric, I'm probably doing like such a large volume of work that day that I'm going to run a fairly significant calorie deficit that day. I'm just between the amount of time I spend out there and the amount of time I spend eating, you know, I might run say like a thousand calorie deficit that day. But if I have a day like that, the next day is going to be really easy or even a complete rest day, in which case I might eat a thousand calorie surplus. So the 20% carbohydrate intake is relative to the amount of food I'm taking in, not necessarily energy I'm expending that day. 
So when you look at it through that lens of like how much energy I'm expending, I'm essentially looking at it from a window of two to three days in terms of meeting my energy demands versus a 24 hour cycle. And then it kind of gets a little more clear in terms of kind of the holistic amount of carbohydrate I'm taking in on a, on a yearly basis uh, or even a weekly basis. And so then I'll usually throw in that if you look at kind of my entire year of food intake, you're going to see roughly about a 10% carbohydrate intake. And that can even ebb and flow a little bit, depending on what my goal races are for the year. Like if I'm doing all longer stuff, it might be a little lower. If I would, would do a year where I would just be focusing on trying to like run the fastest marathon I could do, it would probably skew higher than that. So yeah. it's really interesting though, when you actually kind of take the time to look at it and dive in deeper than, than just carbs, good carbs, bad. <laughs> yeah. So you're, let's say we, you're in a, uh, I'm not sure how you organize your training, but let's say you're putting in base miles. Uh, how many times a day do you train? Uh, you know, usually I'll start out doing one kind of bigger work run in the morning. And then once I, usually once I start getting up above around a hundred miles a week or another way to look at it is maybe like 12 to 13 hours or so I start adding in a double um, but I've done it differently too. I've done some training blocks where I focus more heavily on just sticking to as many singles as possible. And then I've done other training blocks where I've done a fairly significant number of doubles where maybe five days a week I'm doing two runs. Um, it really just, sometimes it depends on a few different variables like life. <laughs> like yeah, sometimes sure. it's, if it's a busy time of year and I just don't have like those large blocks of time, then I'm more likely to probably do some doubles or, you know, here in Phoenix, it, it's a little goofy because if I go and do a three hour run, I'm going to butt up against hundred plus degree temperatures, basically no matter how early I start. So right. sometimes just staying on top of like hydration and stuff, it's beneficial to split it in two and have that window of time where you can kind of refuel and rehydrate before going out for a few more miles. Do you, do you eat lighter generally in the morning and try to organize it. So you're eating more, most of your calories after your workouts mm -hmm. are done. Yeah. So where, where it ends up running the most seamless, I would say is when I am doing a two a day and usually I'm doing some form of a two a day. Once I kind of get into like the thick of it, it's like, if I'm only doing a single run, I'm probably still going to go to the gym and do some, you know, basic strength work and mobility stuff in the afternoon. And when, what I found works well for me just from a logistical standpoint and just where I tend to gravitate towards is kind of two really big meals. Um, and I can always flex in some snacks if I'm doing a, a lot more work and I'm feeling hungry. I don't ignore hunger pain. So I'm not going to like, I'm not going to say, Oh, well it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm hungry, but normally I only eat two meals. So I'm going to wait till dinner. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, but usually it ends up playing out where I'll get done with my morning session. I'll eat a really big meal. And then, uh, then I'll go about work and stuff. And then by the time mid to late afternoon rolls around and I do a second session, once I finish that, it's getting close enough to dinner time where I just have another big meal after that. And, and that's usually where kind of my intuition ends up going. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So how about you? Are you still, are you, are you still following kind of a, a high carb or I'm sorry, a low carb diet or what are you kind of doing these days? Yeah. Well, I, uh, when I was, uh, still kind of knocking around on Twitter and Instagram. I think I uh, mentioned to Sean a while back that uh, I'd been uh, diagnosed about a year and a half ago with uh, 
form of vasculitis called uh, granulomatosis with uh, polyangiitis, I think is how it's pronounced. It used to be called Wegner's. And so, um, uh, just a slight aside, a, a buddy of mine, you may know of him, uh, Brandon Hudgens, as a miler, sub four miler, lives out in, uh, I want to say, North Carolina. He'll shoot me if I get that wrong. Might be <laughs> South Carolina. But, but, but anyway, he, uh, uh, he was diagnosed with this uh, same disease about 11 years ago and is still uh, kind of soldiered through it. He's had it way worse than I've had it. It can get very systemic. It can, uh, I have a fairly limited form that's uh, just affected my uh, upper respiratory system. And uh, so ears, uh, sinuses, and uh, uh, but it's an inflammation of of blood vessels basically and it's autoimmune and so they don't really know exactly apart from stress and maybe an infection what causes it in, in my case i support uh brandon uh uh is a spokesman for the vasculitis foundation and he's got a uh, they, they've given him uh uh, a platform called Victory Over Vasculitis. And so I, I donated some money and got a t-shirt, Victory Over Vasculitis, a couple of years ago. I remember getting, I told Brandon this, and I told Brandon that, you know, I opened the box, I got the t-shirt, it's like, cool t-shirt. It's like, boy, I, I hope I never get this. This is just a crappy disease. And then six months later, I came down with it. <laughs> so, so it's kind of ironic, but, and there's Sean, it looks like. He's popping up. Yeah. Perfect so anyway, time. Just talking about him. <laughs> carnivore. Yeah. So anyway, I uh, I mentioned this to Dr. Noakes on on Twitter, and he uh, I said, "What do you think about going full on carnivore?" And he was like, "Why not? Give it a shot." So <laughs> I uh, so I'm you know I'm still on prescription meds to kind of keep the this thing tamped down and uh, prevent flares, but I'm also been pretty much, uh, pretty much straight carnivore. So meat, fish, chicken, mm -hmm. I'll throw in some eggs. Uh, um, I was playing around with red wine for a bit in the evening. Also kind of doing mostly one meal a day. Uh, if I get really hungry, I'll have a snack or something, but uh, still try to keep it meat. And then, uh, uh, Seems like my summer, my summer alcohol is uh, tequila. So I'll, I'll have a trade out the red wine for a shot of tequila at night, you know, knowing full mm -hmm. well it's, it's poison and not doing me any good, but, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to, you know, the numbers for my markers, it, you know, we're going in the right direction last round of blood tests. So it doesn't seem to be doing any harm. Now it's just hard to say, you know, is it having a profound impact? It's just, there's just, uh, the nature of the disease is such that uh, the blood markers that they're looking to measure activity uh, mm -hmm. and also to verify a diagnosis aren't particularly good uh, predicting flare-ups. Like you could be uh, technically in remission with no, uh, you know, no ANCA uh, registering at all and, and just blow up the next day. Or you could be like me. I'm kind of. I'm. I'm not in the normal range yet, but it's half of what it was, and and uh, and still be relatively stable. And so, uh, it's just you know, it's kind of a nerve-wracking way to live. Uh, 
you just don't know if you're, you know, really getting better or not. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just, you kind of got to go with, uh, uh, yeah, there was some, some architectural destruction in my sinuses as a result of the disease. I've got a, it blew out the cartilage in, uh, in my nose and, and, uh, and none of that can really be repaired until it, they're sure that it's in remission. So um, uh, it could be a while on that, but uh, you know, so I have some hearing loss uh, and, and, and some uh, fatigue that seems to just uh, uh, spontaneously crop up. So I, you know, I'll find myself taking more naps than I usually do. So. But uh, yeah, I, so I, I'm, I'm thinking that the carnivore, uh, given everything that you know, we've been uh, attributing to it in the last year and, and, and uh, uh, you know, Michaela's success uh, with it, uh, treating an autoimmune uh, disorder, it's like, well, you know, there, there's no real guidance on what to do mm -hmm. except, except to try to avoid it, you know, inflammatory foods and uh, as best you can. And so, uh, it seems like, uh, um, and I'll, you know, sometimes when I dine out, it's a, it's a little sketchy, uh, like exactly how the food was prepared. And uh, I was in Mississippi for a couple of weeks and, and uh, you know, there was some, you know, I, I'd want to be a complete uh, 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 hermit about, or, or uh, uh, you know, so I'll, 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 I'll try a little bit of this and that. I didn't have any bread or anything, but the vegetables just, by all accounts, uh, you know, that was the only thing that really changed. It just lit me up. I mean, hip arthritis, and which I've, which I've been dealing with, that's kind of the telltale signs. Like when, it, when it gets bad, it's like, check my food. What did I, you know? Uh, so, uh, so I've been pretty much staying away from most veg. Uh, but again, you know the prescription it's 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 hard to kind of nail it down mm -hmm. in a scientific way you know yeah I, I always thought like basing or going looking at like nutritional alterations for performance is so much easier of a thing to gauge because like the the feedback is fairly immediate at least the way I see it like if I go out and do a workout and I fall you know consistently underperform at a workout and the, the main thing or only thing I changed was a nutritional thing, then like, you know, I have to attribute at least a portion of it to that or yeah. if they stay the same or if they can prove, you know, there's, there's some of that kind of a little more direct immediate feedback. Whereas when you're, when you're dealing with something that's a little, maybe longer term, it's hard to really put your finger on what's causing what, and uh, it does make it, make it a little more maybe frustrating and equally interesting. But, you know, we had uh, Andrew Scarborough on the, I don't know if you've heard of Andrew, Andrew before, on the show and uh he he was been living for sean I don't, I don't know if you can hear us yet but i think it was like it's six or seven years uh with uncurable uh brain cancer essentially a brain tumor yeah. and uh he said like when he'll have these like epileptic seizures if he eats the wrong thing so his feedback loop is super clear. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he messes up, his body tells him almost immediately. And it's like, that's kind of uh, one of those things where to some degree, it's like, it's nice to know like, oh, this definitely doesn't work. But you also don't want to be in a position like that either where like, you know, you make a mistake knowing it or not. And you have that level of a, a negative consequence, I guess. So yeah. Well, I think it's, 
if you can get it dialed in like that, I think that's really good. And, you know, I, I'm 62 and, uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking at, looking at this like, well, ent entropy is really kicking in now. And so I'm digging in my heels to kind of uh, uh, do the best I can with, uh, with not falling apart. And so, uh, you know, given, um, you know, uh, osteoarthritis in the hips and, uh, you know, the, uh, the Wagners, uh, it's, uh, there's a couple of things going on that, uh, I, uh, you know, the progression of which, which is, is uncertain. And, uh, uh, and so the, the strategies that I'm using to, uh, uh, uh see, you know, if I, if, if, see if I can, you know, uh, stay healthier are, uh, you know, they're speculative at best. It's, like it's, it's an equal one. I'm, I'm trying things and saying, but I've been, I've been pretty much strict, strictly carnivore since uh, January of this year. So, and I tried it for a bit last year with Sean on, uh, he had his challenges up over the summer and maybe it was two years ago, I guess. Yeah. So, so the better part of a, well, not January, there's better. So it's been January of last year. So that I've been pretty much strictly carnivore. So, and so things are moving in the right direction, it seems, uh, but there's good days and bad days. And it's just hard to kind of pin, pin it on, uh, uh, on the nutrition specifically. So, but it seems like a good strategy to uh, keep it simple. You know, if, uh, mm -hmm. if, something, if something creeps into the mix and then I have an adverse reaction, it could be coincidence, but if it happens often enough, uh, it, you know, that could be a sign, but I try not to have it happen so I, i'm not setting up experiments for myself to see how crappy i can make myself feel, you know? <laughs> well and that's what that's what michaela was saying too it's like when she, she said when she makes a mistake it can be so debilitating for a long enough period of time you get to a point where you're like why would i even want to reintroduce something if it's gonna cause me issues for the next two weeks you have to really want to know at that point right right so uh maybe ignorance is bliss and yeah <laughs> Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band that uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what their goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed, and that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like bicep curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. So Sean, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you guys. Well, cool. I apologize for the later while I was 
totally unaware. I thought we were doing this at, at uh, one, one o'clock. And so, Robert, oh. um, thanks for coming on. I think we've got Rob at one, correct? If I'm not yes. Mistaken. Yeah, we do. I, I somehow not managed to get this on my schedule. So I was, I was, I was in Costco's parking lot going to buy some food. And I was like, and Zach sort of texted me, said, hey, dude, you ready to record? And I'm like, heck no. So I zipped home. Uh, Rich, so you have, so I overheard you say Wagner. So is that Wagner's chronic granulomatosis? Is that what yes, you're dealing with? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I apologize. And that, if I'm not mistaken, has an autoimmune uh, etiology. Is that correct? Or my, that's, my, that's right. Yeah. Okay. That's why. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's, that's one of these weird ones that I never dealt with as an orthopedic surgeon, but I remember yeah, in medical yeah. school. And so it's, yeah. uh, and so you it sounds like it had it affected your your face basically is that where you were you were having issues your lungs where was it where was well it no i've always been ugly you know but it, <laughs> it, it, it affected the deep structures for sure uh yeah i mean it it it's it, it's a it's a it can be a, a very systemic form of vasculitis i was uh, i mentioned my friend brandon uh he uh he had it in the lungs it can get in the kidneys and so if it's not if it's not treated uh uh, and it's and, and you've got it bad enough. It's it's a hundred percent fatal. Uh, there do seem to be some cases uh, that remain fairly localized, and I may have that. It's it remains to be seen. It's it's uh, you know it's a little hard to. I've 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 got a great rheumatologist. And I've got a great ENT, and they've both dealt with this. Uh, 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 over the years, they've had. They've, I'm not their first uh, first case, and they're they're fairly philosophical about it. Like it's all you can do really is uh, uh, you just try to tamp down uh, the immune system, you know, that part yeah. of the immune system that's trying to kill me, basically. And so uh, I'm on. Uh, I'm on. A, I'm actually on fairly low dosages of things, but we just kind of keep keep things. Try to keep it from flaring. So. And see if we can keep those, you know, markers moving down, and maybe get into remission is the goal. So, sure. Yeah. And, but, and, and but yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, and I and I hate to be you know late to the party. Maybe you already answered no, this question. Right. But, but did the uh, has, has a rheumatologist or the the ear, nose, and throat guy, the NT guy, the otolaryngologist? Uh, yeah. Has he talked to you? Have you talked to him about dietary strategies? Oh yeah, yeah. Or how it works, and what yeah. are their, I just I just want to know what their opinion is on that because it's it seems like it's. Either some people think it's absolutely crazy, they don't care, or some people are supportive themselves. So. Yeah, the ENT, uh, not so much. Uh, we haven't discussed the dietary. The rheumatologist more so, because he's kind of the, he's kind of running the show uh, from the uh, intervention, medical interventions, so the, the drugs and so forth. Uh, my primary care physician uh, actually had some uh, intensive training in uh, autoimmune diseases when she was in med school, so she was conversant with what I was going through. And, and uh, uh, I'm going to blank on the name of the book. Uh, uh, it's a, uh, a protocol that was developed for a dietary protocol. that was developed for uh, uh, multiple sclerosis. Oh, uh, yeah, probably walls. Terry walls. walls. Yeah, the walls. Yeah. So, she, right, sure. so she was like, well, are you doing walls? And I said, well, I, maybe the flip side of walls. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely I've eliminated a lot of things, but it's mostly the vegetables and all the grains and so, but I, I'm thinking in terms of anti-inflammatory uh, and, uh, and she was on board with that. And my rheumatologist was completely fine with it. He's, he's younger guy. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I, I think it's maybe a couple of things is that nobody is really 
sure uh, 100% the impact that uh, a particular nutritional strategy can have on anything per se. All you can do really is try and see, and is it working for you? And, and uh, have, you, have, you run, have you guys run across uh, Michael Steninga by any chance? Um, so he, uh, I, I, a doctor friend of mine uh, referred me to a podcast that he was on and uh, I subsequently bought his book, but it's called Medical Nihilism. And uh, it's, uh, he's, a, he's a philosopher of, of, uh, of science and medicine. And so, you know, he, I'm probably going to butcher the synopsis, but it's basically, he kind of feels like, uh, given the state of medical research and uh, uh, big pharma, uh, uh, and really the, the paucity of magic bullets that medicine has come up with, apart from maybe antibiotics and insulin, the, uh, uh, that really the logical sort of uh, uh, position to take as a patient, and maybe as a doctor, uh, he kind of advocates for something called uh, soft treatment, I think is uh, what he calls it, soft intervention is that you really just kind of have to take a, a very skeptical, uh, almost nihilistic attitude towards what's possible and, and not to trust anything too much, especially the claims of the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, the claim, because everybody's kind of in this, you know, uh, mode of, you know, uh, profit. And, uh, um, you know, if the medicine's work half as well as they claim we work, you know, uh, you know we, we, we wouldn't see as much need for them, uh, perhaps. But I, I've kind of taken that position with, uh, uh, with uh, both strength training, actually, and, uh, uh, and nutrition. It's like, I'm just, uh, you just kind of got to, you know, respect these basic principles of health and adaptation and, uh, uh, and then uh, see what happens, you know, implement something and then stick with it a bit and see what happens. And uh, uh, it, 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 I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, but, or it may have been too much of an answer, but uh, I, I, I think by and large that all three of my doctors are, they're, they're, they're pretty hip to this notion that this is an incurable disease. And the best we can kind of get to here is give you, uh, give you the, the drugs that seem to work and uh, the, the surgical interventions that seem to work for most people most of the time. But ultimately, you're going to have to see what happens to you. We can only treat you. We can't treat you based on, you know, uh, past a certain point, we can't treat you based on, you know, what's worked for everybody else. We kind of got to look at you and see how you're responding. And, and uh, so I feel like I'm in pretty good hands with them. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think that's, on, yeah. I think that's, I think that's very reasonable. And, and, you know, it is kind of an interesting thing that we have all these sort of drugs and they're often developed on sort of one biochemical pathway. They find something that does something and then they find what drug either, either makes us go faster or slower or impedes or allows us this process to happen. And then we get, you know, some sort of clinical effect and, and we don't really, look at the sort of the, the the thousands of inputs that probably drive whatever pathology we're looking at you know and it's it's kind of a 
uh, very interesting thing. Um, yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, I think the thing about Wagner's is, is it's just so rare. Right. And, yeah. and you know, it, for me, it just started as a bad cold a couple of Christmases ago. I woke up with a bad cold Christmas day and it's like, oh, crap, I'm going to miss the Christmas party that I really wanted to go to today. And, uh, and then it just persisted for like two, three weeks. It's like, wow, this is really a bad cold. And then I had, you know, colleagues, friends in the gym who've all had sinus issues, it seems. And so they were counseling me, ah, you just got a sinus infection. And it very well could have been that. So I, I did everything I, uh, I thought to do, uh, you know, without going to the doctor. And, and, uh, and it seemed to clear up for a while. And then uh, when I was driving out to uh, uh, Mississippi a couple of summers ago, it's like, it's, uh, my eustachian tubes just completely clogged. And I went, pretty much just deaf, I just had bone conduction. And so that was like, well, I think it's time to go see the doctor now, you know? So uh, uh, th that's what precipitated that. That and, you know, the cal, the, uh, I mentioned this to uh, Zach, was that it, uh, the inflammation in the, in the nasal structure is such that it, it really damages the mucosa, which as I understand it, uh, supply a lot of the, the healthy mucosa are required to supply adequate blood to the cartilage and if that gets compromised then the cartilage decays and so I've got a saddle nose defect from the Wagners and which is also a telltale sign but you look at these things and denial is a very powerful uh, you know uh, response to geez I've got do I really have this rare disorder but uh, it's just I think it's maybe just undiagnosed it's just not it and you read the literature and it's been hard to diagnose and doctors don't think of it as the first thing that you might actually have when, so it may not be as rare as we think it is. It's still, you know, uh, still rare, but there's a whole you know, spectrum of vasculitis diseases. Wagner's is just one of them. And, and uh, I've been fortunate. I, you know, I, uh, it, it sucks to have it, but I've been fortunate, uh, in terms of being able to get it under control. I got a relatively early diagnosis, you know, and, and now it's just kind of, uh, you know, staying consistent with what seems to be working, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And it's, it's kind of like we do have these sort of weird, like I was gonna say, Wegner's is, is something that would obviously be pretty rare. Uh, and so you're not gonna have a, just a broad swath of data by which to say what's going to work ideal. It's, it's a very small yeah. subset of people. I, I literally, I literally diagnosed myself. I mean, I look at the stuff and it's just like, well, I have all of these things going on and nothing else seems, you know, like a differential diagnosis if I was house, but I'm not house and I'm not a doctor and I'm not medically trained. So I went to my primary care physician and I said, I think I have this thing. And uh, so she ordered the blood test and she, you know, did some, uh, you know, the cursory examination, you know, bone conduction test and uh, she goes, anything, everything came back positive. So I think, you know, uh, as much as I hate researching disease, I mean that, uh, especially when I'm involved, you know, <laughs> it, 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 that paid off. You know? So um, unfortunately, uh, I, I had it, but fortunately, I you know was able to put the pieces together, not have to go through a protracted uh, uh, series of tests. That it seems like a lot of I, I got away with 
you know, some, uh, uh, some blood work and a lung x-ray, you know, to kind of clear out, to rule out the other involvement, the other organs that can be involved with this. And so, you know, so I think, you know, people, I mean, this is my first real foray into uh, modern uh, American uh, uh, medicine. And I, I mean, I've successfully stayed away for the most part from doctors and surgeons and and so dealing with health insurance and uh, you know, uh, all the hurdles that uh, uh, they throw up, uh, I, I haven't had anything denied, but I mean, there's, there's things that you have to do, obviously. And, and uh, that was all new to me. And so it's uh, the whole idea of, of uh, you've got to take real responsibility for your own well-being in the system, not just for yourself and your day-to-day -day activity, but in the system that you now find yourself enmeshed in. And it's, 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 uh, it's frustrating. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, I'm 10 years older than you, 12 years older than you. You know, when I was a kid, we still had house calls, you know, and, and uh, uh, it was just, uh, you just didn't have this, uh, you know, the procedures are different now. You went, you called your doctor, I'm sick, a visit he comes visit you he gives you a prescription and you know you get well and, and uh, that's just not the way it is anymore just, yeah I, I mean i've gone literally to the physician only when i was forced to by my occupation as, yeah. as like an employment screening i've never <laughs> as a physician i never go i mean i just i just i i, I you know i think you know and, and granted you had symptoms and you went and saw and you got it figured out but i think a lot of us, I mean, the problem is we have so many sick people that, that are just sick. And so it's, it's like everybody going once a year to see their doctor for a checkup because so many people are sick uh, that we've kind of come to expect that. But I mean, honestly, I think if you're a healthy person, you really should have to visit the doctor. I mean, you, you, well, right. just, you shouldn't need to. Right. Well, one of my, uh, uh, actually, what my uh, colleague at Barbell Strategies, uh, PhD in biochemistry and uh, don't take this the wrong way, but he, uh, you know, he 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 looks at doctors as basically uh, the medical equivalent of auto mechanics. You know, you're, you know, don't, you don't really need to go to see them unless you need something fixed. You know, and, and uh, uh, they might have some merit. Yeah. So, but uh, I I uh, I just well, it probably goes back to when I was a kid and had a. A ruptured appendix when I was like five, I think, and uh, almost died. And it was misdiagnosed over the course of a, a week and a half. So I was really, I was a pretty sick kid when they finally got it figured out. And uh, I've just been phobic of doctors and hospitals, I think, ever since then. I've just done what I could to take care of myself and treat myself. And, and uh, you know, that may or may not have paid dividends. But I, you know, I was 60 before I got, you know, really had to be forced into the medical system. So, so. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they obviously there's 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 certainly things where you know you get a gunshot or a broken leg or something like that. You know, definitely. right? I mean, you've got some good stuff, but I mean, for the average person with chronic disease, we you know, and this is not a new concept. We've been saying this forever. We don't do a very good job, and right, a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the uh, guidelines and. Uh, treatment options we have are, are almost almost developed by pharmaceutical companies and we just kind of plug them into a system and it doesn't really make right. people any healthier that makes them more medicated and maybe the symptoms get a little better but anyway so talk to so you said you've got a background in strength the strength world as well if I'm not mistaken is that correct well yeah I've been 
I, I wouldn't call myself a strength and conditioning coach out of respect for the profession. Uh, you know, those guys, I've, I've got friends who are, you know, legit uh, strength and conditioning coaches and uh, uh, their domain is uh, a little more uh, uh, broad than, uh, than, than mine. I, uh, I was, uh, uh, trained in Olympic weightlifting coaching back in the early 2000s. Uh, had been lifting myself for maybe five or six years prior to that. Uh, I uh, did some time uh, in uh, Pavel Satsalin's organization back when he was still with the Russian Kettlebell Challenge. And, and uh, he's got his own organization now called Strong First. And uh, I've done a couple of his uh, courses since then. One, uh, uh, for endurance athletes uh, trying to get stronger and another one that's uh, uh, kind of program design uh, uh, taken from the, the Russian weightlifting uh, uh, literature. Uh, he's uh, uh, got a sports science background and he's fluent in Russian, obviously he's from Russia, but, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and so he's, uh, he's pieced together, you know, that material in a really, uh, useful way for coaches who are dealing with other sports. Uh, you know, uh, there's that other, uh, uh, other book called The System that came out a few years back and I'm blanking on the guy's name, but they're longtime NFL uh, uh, strength coaches. And uh, that's another uh, good system for kind of mapping the Russian way of thinking about periodization onto other sports. Uh, and then, uh, uh, so, uh, weightlifting was what I was primarily uh, coaching, and uh, and uh, kettlebells also. So I got certified in that and taught for Popple's organization for a while. And and uh, back when the sport itself was uh, brand new in the United States, and uh, I uh, as a I guess what forty eight to fifty year old masters guy, I held uh, three of the national records in the open division and three weight classes for a, a, an event called long cycle clean and jerk. And so sports changed a lot in the States, especially it's way more popular now. It's way more gifted people doing it and the rules have changed somewhat. So how I figured out how to be good at it wouldn't work these days, but you know, that was, uh, that was a good lesson for me as an athlete and as a coach and, um, uh, to, to go for those things and, and actually make them happen and in a, in a logical progressive way. And, um, and I've, you know, I've had a few national weightlifters, American open winners, masters nationals, and, uh, uh, myself, I was never a gifted, uh, weightlifter or an athlete in any other sport for that matter. I, uh, uh, it took me about 10 years of, of, uh, relatively fortunately relatively injury free and consistent uh weightlifting practice to sneak onto the podium and the masters nationals about 2008 i think so so uh and that was kind of about when i hung it up it's like my hips started kind of acting up after that and so uh yeah i've got i had a buddy uh i don't know, you know i don't know if you know gene flynn did you ever meet gene, gene flynn i don't know he was a not familiar name okay. but uh, he was he was a master's Olympic lifter from, from uh, North Carolina. He was a Highland Games world champion. He and I went back and forth during the Highland Games. And he would beat me all the time yeah. <laughs> at the world yeah. championships. I was 
get second Gene all the time. He's a big Olympic lifter. But, okay. Oh, uh, uh, I said there's stuff about the kettlebells. I've, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'll swing kettlebells. You know, relatively heavy, just just Russian swings, uh, and that's what I found to be the most effective uses for that particular modality for other sports in my experience and, and you know working with other people is just you know just a swing as, as a good exercise i don't know what your thoughts on on that are that are for you know other sports well i uh it, it, you know kind of segue into that uh uh you know the weightlifting uh kind of uh uh well this was back uh, early 2000s and it really hadn't caught fire by way of CrossFit yet. So it was still, I think it was maybe 2,700 members in USA weightlifting nationwide back in the late nineties, early 2000s. Now we've got something like 27,000. So it's, it's grown exponentially, but at the time just finding weightlifters who wanted, you know, kids who were actually interested in weightlifting or even adults was, was pretty hard and, and timing's everything. I, I, I moved to Boulder about a decade ago and literally within a year and a half after I left, it just blew up in Pennsylvania where I used to live and the kids I used to coach are coaches there now. And so uh, the, the sports performance side of it uh, started uh, kind of opening itself up to me. And uh, um, so weightlifting, and I was telling Zach this earlier, uh, both kettlebells and, and weightlifting you know, I, I didn't take up until as an adult and, and it just sort of, I just sort of intuitively uh, latched onto a boy, I wish I had these things going on when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13. And, and, uh, and I really didn't discover serious barbell lifting until I was in college. I, uh, a buddy of mine was on the football team. I was kind of looking around for, I was messing around with some bodybuilding stuff and uh and he found a powerlifting gym in town and so there's this cat named uh, terry unger who ran the west central illinois powerlifting club he's a masters he worked at a factory you know all the guys in his gym were guys he knew from the factory and these guys were brutes you know and uh he he didn't have a sports uh performance background at all he just loved powerlifting and uh you know parents would send him their kids to train and he had uh uh, he, he got to know the strength coach at University of Iowa. They sent one of their backs uh, who lived in that in, in, in Galesburg to see Terry that gives bench press up over the course of the summer. And the kid was, kid was a talented athlete. He went from like 225 to 315 bench for a triple, you know, as, you know in, over the course of a summer. Just, uh, you know, your, your, your ideal, you know, sort of uh, uh, combination of fast twitch and you know just good you know good athletic genes and so anyway terry had a big impact on he was like my first uh my first real coach uh that i that i trusted and and uh and he was and uh all that stuff sort of kind of uh mapped on to it's like well that's something i can do i can uh my first uh seriously uh challenging sports performance uh athlete uh, uh was a girl that had just been uh admitted to harvard as a basketball player and uh she was as a high school senior like six seven 195 200 pounds and uh her coach uh her strength coach at harvard sent her her uh her, her workout and uh 
and she didn't know how to do any of the movements. And so that was kind of my entree. It was like, oh, I could be somebody who helps it, this interface between college, high school kids who aren't getting any specific or uh, good uh, barbell training. I'll get back to your kettlebell thing. I haven't forgotten uh, the, uh, you know, how to lift. And so, you know, my, I, I have runner, I've had a, a, a gal who uh, uh, was a div three uh, runner, arguably uh, a prospect. Uh, she's a talented runner and, and she started lifting with me and really enjoyed it. And she ended up getting recruited by a div one school. And, but what really made my day was I got an email from her uh, uh, that her, her lifting coach at college had uh, made her demo power cleans to the, uh, uh, the freshman boys who just weren't quite getting it. And I said, that's what I want to hear, you know? So, so the kettlebells, yeah, I think swings are great. Two hand swings. Uh, I, I, I think if that was the, uh, the only kettlebell exercise that uh, you could do, uh, that's going to impact just about everything. Posterior chain, uh, core, uh, I think on your light days, you know, one arm swings are great for counter rotational training. Uh, uh, you have to stabilize in a different way. You won't probably generate as much power or force because it's single arm, but you know, use it for use it for other things. I have, uh, I use them all the time. Now I use them with uh, my runners primarily uh, as finishing work with what we're calling anti glycolytic training these days. It's a uh, um, it's, it's, uh, a form. I, I, I kind of think of it as growing mitochondria, mitochondrial biogenesis and mitochondrial respiration. And, and for runners, uh, you know, this happens generally, uh, from running, they get it, you know, they, they build up that mitochondria in their legs and, and, uh, and, uh, all the, all the mechanisms that, uh, go with that, the, um, it's the fancy name, the monocarboxylic trans, uh, transport proteins. All that machinery comes along with it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, shuttling lactate, in your case, uh, those MCTs do the same thing with uh, ketones. Uh, 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 and, uh, you know, for energy production. Uh, now, the thing about uh, kettlebells for runners is that I, I try to use them and I use exercises to kind of bring that into the upper body and the torso. It's like uh, if you build more mitochondria, uh, you're, you're, in, uh, up, uh, up, you're, you're leveling up the body's ability to process lactate and use it as a fuel. And so the more mitochondria you have, the more MCTs you have. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I'm not gonna, uh, be very successful that if I, if I just have them do it, uh, endurance work with their legs, they're already doing that for their running. Their running give, is giving them 95 to 99% of what they need. So uh, my job in, in that respect is to uh, try to promote uh, uh, that, that metabolic machinery in, uh, in their upper body so that they can make use of it uh, when they're running because all the tissue participates, you know, so, so you, you can turn the whole body. So uh, 
my buddy uh, Mike, who runs our gym, you know, he calls it putting more putting more batteries into your Tesla. You know, so you're you're uh, uh, so that's that's one way to uh, I think think about kettlebells beyond just training strength. You're, uh, you're uh, you're, you're using it to put the body into uh, uh, a, not quite glycolysis. The idea is you're touching and touching glycolysis and then backing off. And what what differentiates it from say interval running and or uh, intervals in running uh, or uh, maybe uh, the Tabata protocol uh, would be like maybe the closest thing to it, but not quite as it is the rest periods. And also the ability to kind of generate uh, a choice of exercise, different kind of mitochondria. So a lot of what runners need, my distance runners, they're, they're the elite, the elite ones are already fast. And I, uh, they came into the sport as fast people already. And so they're trying to take that speed and teach it to endure for their, for their distance running. Um, so my job is to try to, you know, kind of help them figure out uh, uh, strength and condition, strength protocols uh, that uh, allow them to recover faster, increase their training loads and uh, not get injured. You know, so if they're, if they're staying healthy, they can train more and that's going to help their sport. So I was telling Zach earlier that that's kind of, uh, kind of the entree for, uh, uh, for my exercise selection for runners is what can I give them that A, the sport doesn't give them and B, how can I load them in such a way that it's not um, uh, increasing the damage that the running does. Every sport has, you know, is, is a potential overuse injury if that's all you do. And, uh, and so uh, I look at strength training as a way to kind of load the tissues, load the connective tissues, load the muscles, load the, the body in a complementary way uh, that will have the effect of uh, um, letting the, the, the sports practice recovery happen, but strengthen everything that's kind of, it's just kind of in between, in between training, I think of it as so. So I don't do a whole lot. I don't try to do things like, uh, you know, uh, that would be analogous to giving a, a baseball pitcher a, a weighted baseball, you know, to improve the speed. Uh, that would be like the opposite of what you would need to do. So. Yeah, Randy, you kind of touched on a, a few questions that I was going to ask. Um, so maybe we can jump into a, a few of them a little, a little deeper. And I think one of the interesting things I've seen historically just from, I mean, this is purely observational, but I think like it makes sense to a lot of people where you go into a weight room and you kind of have these groupings there where you get your big, strong folks kind of over by the heavy free weights. And then they'll, you'll find another kind of corner of the gym where all the endurance athletes are at and they're sitting there kind of with their 10 pound dumbbells doing like a hundred bicep curls and shoulder lift type things. And maybe some like walking lunges or something like that, because you know, they're just doing what they know, right? They're, they're enduring. <laughs> right, right, right. It's kind of like what you said. It's doubling down on something you're already 95 to 100% of the way there on. So yeah. uh, I think that's actually where the, where the camp of anti-lifting for endurance kind of comes in, where they see that and they're like, why don't you just go for another run if you're going to do that? And it makes sense in that situation. So maybe, maybe we should start with just 
uh, why should, and I, I know you answered this to a degree, but like, why should endurance runners lift weights and why should they never lift for endurance? Well, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say never, uh, but it, it wouldn't be my, my first choice. There might be, I, I can't think of a reason why I would say never uh, train for endurance. I mean, I can't think of a reason for doing that. Uh, but that doesn't mean there isn't one. Somebody out there might have a good reason for doing that. But, and there are some sports where it's uh, strength endurance or endurance strength. I think, like I said, for runners, uh, uh, I, well, let me kind of back into it this way. So I get a beginning runner, a runner who's beginning lifting, say a high school freshman or sophomore, let's say. Uh, and I've had, for whatever reason, uh, I've had mostly uh, high school girls uh, that have stuck with it. Uh, and uh, the boys just don't seem interested in doing the kind of lifting we're doing. I, I'm not sure what the mechanism is. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, a private coach. I'm for hire. You know, the parents, you know, are paying. And, 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 and it's, uh, so, I, so I'm not, I'm not entirely clear about the motivations. But the girls who stick with it invariably get better. And the first thing that I hear from them is how much they feel their postures improved out on the road. So we all do, I, I, just by uh, my own uh, prejudices about torso training, core training, I don't really prescribe specific core training unless there's some remedial need for it. Uh, uh, the reason being is that all the lifts that we do are ground-based. We don't, uh, I'll expand on, on that a little bit, the occasional bench press, but, uh, but it's all ground-based. They're done standing. So, you know, if you start out with a body weight uh, 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 air squat, and that's all you can squat, and a year later, you're squatting 300 pounds, well, your core has necessarily gotten stronger. And there's no amount of crunches and reverse hypers that are going to produce that result. Uh, you know, the squatting is what did it. And so when you, I think of, uh, in the coaches that I've, you know, stolen the idea from think that, you know, the core is, uh, uh, the torso is, is where the transmission of power happens. It starts at the hips, depending on the sport, runs to the torso, the ability to generate, uh, you know, uh, a tight uh, a tight core is essential, and and it needs to be automatic. Those deep structures need to be firing automatically. Now, with runners, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I've run across, and I can't I can't cite this, so I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, but one of the things that I ran across is a principle that I think about when uh, when we left is is po is the postural muscles. So. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things that seems to happen uh, for endurance athletes or any 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 runner who gets tired is that their posture starts to go right. They can't hold themselves up, and uh, what takes over is the uh, the, uh, the the uh, the more exterior uh, respiration muscles. Now the diaphragm maybe to some degree, and but. But uh, those intercostals and and uh, and some of those other structures, the muscles that you actually need to breathe with, start participating in keeping your body upright. And once that happens, it's a spiral. You're done. 
you know, so uh, I look at the kind of uh, weights we do primarily to begin with is that this is going to help you, you know, run tall and run strong and uh, feel less fatigue in the upper body. And it's just, I mean, we do, you know, my runners do what my weightlifters do. They just do them in, um, uh, obviously with less weight and sometimes in a, uh, uh, a more uh, sports performance idea. So it's like, like the, the power, uh, power cleans as opposed to full cleans, power snatches as opposed to full snatches, you know, things that uh, weightlifters will eventually use as, as uh, assistance exercises for the full lifts in competition for sports, you know, we can use those as the primary training lifts. Although I'll get girls who want to learn how to do full cleans and full snatches and, and, uh, and uh, happy to, happy to do it. Cause I think it actually adds to their overall athleticism. I think, um, one of the one of the bugaboos, uh, especially out here in uh, well, maybe not especially out here, maybe maybe in running out here in Colorado and other sports uh, in other parts of the country, is this over over specialization, and uh, you know kids getting you know Tommy John surgeries when they're you know 13 years old is ridiculous you know but it it happens, and uh, you know so I'm definitely on the side of. Uh, kids uh, learning to play a lot of sports as they're growing up, you know, first unstructured play and then, you know, t-ball or something, and then maybe youth soccer, but, but tennis, get, get involved in a lot of sports because that's how your body learns to move efficiently and uh, gracefully and with strength. And, and, uh, and so by the time you do specialize, you've got a, a, a vocabulary of movement available to you that somebody who just plays baseball their whole lives doesn't have. And you also have a, uh, a, a general systemic adaptation to uh, a, an enormous variety of stressors. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're gonna be physically stronger. I, I grew up in Illinois. The kids who were the best athletes in my high school weren't the kids that lived in town, they were the farm kids. You know, they were baling hay, you know, uh, birthing cows, you know, cutting hogs, you know, they, they were, you know, chores, they were working all day when they got home from school and you know, or over the summer. And so, you know, those kids were beasts, a lot of them. Uh, and uh, so I look at the weight training for high school girls, especially uh, as uh, it's just another skill set uh, to add to their athleticism. So usually by the time I've uh, uh, gotten a high school runner into the program, they're already pretty dedicated. They want to run. They like running. They're good at it. Uh, they're generally all really good students. Uh, they have club coaches on the side that are, by and large, super responsible about their training volume, and they teach them how to read their paces. And you know, they know, given their training, what they can expect out of themselves in a race, so they don't walk around perpetually defeated. and and upset because they didn't do as well as they thought they should. And, and, uh, and so they, 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 they kind of latch on to this and buy into this uh, in a way that really uh, 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 helps their performance. Now it's, again, we're talking about N equals one. I, uh, it, it's, it, it's very difficult and I, I'm, very, I'm very upfront about this with all my athletes, uh, all my uh, runners, 
He's like, I, I cannot promise you that this, will make, that this will make you faster. And I cannot promise you that uh, uh, you're going to uh, see immediate performance improvements. Uh, my, you know, our goal here is to make you more uh, resilient. Uh, it's to build up your training load. It's to make you a more skilled athlete. It's going to allow you to, you know, the goal is really that you know, you're going to recover better. You're going to stay healthy. You'll be able to do your running at a, at a higher level because you're able to devote uh, injury-free time to it. And, and so I, I, we try to sidle in. I was like, I, I you know, I, it's just, it's just the strength coach thing, I think, that I picked up. It's like, where do I have the most influence on an athlete that's strength training with me? And it's, it's like uh, my weightlifters, you know, we're, we're squatting, we're uh, doing pulls, we're doing clean and jerk snatches, uh, presses. Um, all those things are like in that domain where I have an enormous impact in my programming and in the performance on the platform. And I just don't have that with the runner. I, I you know, I, I'm not their running coach. I'm not their sports coach. I'm their strength coach. So, so I, I have these goals that I try to uh, uh, impress upon them are, you know, it's not how much you're lifting in the weight room. It's how you're lifting it. It's like, how are, how are, your, how are your workouts going? Uh, your running workouts going? How do you feel? How are you recovering? How are you eating? How are you sleeping? Um, and, you know, the girls that have stuck with it, I mean, they've all, uh, I, I've got uh, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my high school girls just graduated uh, this year, uh, going to a very good Div 1 program. She's two-time 800-meter uh, champ in the state in the 5A division and uh, top uh, four or five in the mile in the country, you know, and, and uh, maybe second or third in the 800 in the country. I mean, she's, she's really good. Now, did my strength training help with that? I, you know, it didn't hurt, you know, and, and uh, she stayed healthy and she kept progressing and, uh, and she stuck with it. So there was a cohort of classmates of hers who kind of over time, kind of floated away and, and uh, you know, none of them are going to college, you know, on running scholarships. And so I'm not saying there's a cause effect there, but there seems to be an association between consistency of uh, training, the desire and, uh, you know, and that the, the, the training has some effect beyond, because I mean, there's, as you know, uh, Zach, there's, you know, what is it in, at any given time, 50% of runners are, injured in one way, shape or form. And so uh, I think just statistically, uh, I, I would bet, I uh, don't know how much I'd bet, but I, I, I would be willing to bet that a lot of those injured runners don't do uh, uh, a properly supervised uh, strength and flexibility program. I'm just guessing, but, and maybe the ones who do don't get injured are just more durable, but it's like, how do you, I haven't figured out a metric for, for measuring that accurately. And so I just try to be honest about our goals, you know, with my athletes. It's like, it's a, this is a good thing you're doing. Uh, and, uh, and if you stick with it, you'll, you'll stay healthier. And, 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 and if you're staying healthier, you should see better results, you know, and then so, it boils, 
and then it boils down to the genetics after that. Yeah. So, so. Are there are there some key lifts that you start with when you have someone who's coming to you for the first time? Like you have a kind of the here's here's step one versus here's what we maybe will add down the road. Yeah, um, I uh, uh, I tend to start with uh, uh, something. It's kind of my version of uh, Gray Cook's functional movement screen, but it's not really the functional movement screen. Uh, I, I, the kind of lifts that we do, so squats, uh, overhead squats, uh, uh, power cleans and uh, presses and so on, all those require a, a certain amount of, of, of joint mobility and flexibility. Kids, it's not, uh, it's usually not a big deal. Uh, they tend to be mobile, so I'll, I'll just have them squat with no resistance, just maybe to a bench. And then it's, well, how deep can you squat? How deep can you squat and keep your back flat? You know, and so we'll just kind of work through that with no weight whatsoever. And then I'll throw them a stick, a PVC pipe and say, here, you know, the, go as wide as you need to go. And, you know, let's see if you can squat all the way down holding the stick over your head. And so we'll try that for a while. And, 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 and this is all kind of like first workout. But the general principle is, is I want to see how they move uh, uh, runners, it seems, again, I don't have any evidence beyond what my own, you know, observations uh, uh, have, have uh, suggested, um, is, is that the things that make runners really good at running aren't the things that make weightlifters really good at weightlifting. And so there's ankle stiffness, there seems to be lower leg stiffness, uh, that runners have, like the ankle flexibility. The thing I notice more, most often is just, there's a, there's a uh, it's not a deficit because it's not their sport, but uh, it comes into play when you're trying to deep squat is, you know, how much can they dorsiflect? Mm -hmm. you know, and so their ankle. That was me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's fine. You know, so, so my, you know, my rule of thumb, uh, well, it's not a rule of thumb, and my rule is, uh, when you're doing things like squats, uh, uh, you want to move to the limit of your, your particular range of motion, your safe range of motion, uh, where you maintain posture, maintain uh, tension. Uh, so for some people, that's ass to grass. For some people, that's at parallel or above parallel. Uh, some athletes, I found, do pretty well uh, if you just put a little bit of a heel lift under them. So I don't make all of my runners buy weightlifting shoes. I do suggest it to them um, that this will help your squat and you don't have to drag out that, you know, three quarter inch piece of stall mat and put your heels on it. And I think you'll find them to be uh, a more stable surface than your, uh, uh, than your Nikes, you know, your, your trainers. Uh, and so some, some of the athletes do that. And I have, you know, small cache of used and unclaimed, uh, lifting shoes around. And sometimes I can, uh, get somebody into those for free. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's generally moving from, uh, uh, bilateral, stable, uh, uh, movements, uh, over time, we'll throw in things like uh, uh, the power cleans and the power snatches. I usually start teaching those right away uh, 
so that they have some facility with the technique by the time we start putting a little bit of weight on the bar, but that might be with the PVC. But uh, of late, like the last year, I've kind of trended towards uh, let's squat, let's front squat, uh, let's do presses and push presses. And uh, we'll warm up with uh, like a power snatch or a power clean. Uh, usually we start from the hang positions and work our way down to the floor. Some of the girls never make it down all the way uh, to starting from the floor, but the hangs are good. Works their back, works the posture, works their explosiveness. Uh, it's, uh, uh, and I, I liked your, you know, talking about, uh, you know, the endurance guys on one side of the gym and the, and the bros on the other side. Right? <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, Sean. <laughs> um, no insult intended. Uh, but I think what you run into is like, what is the, uh, you know, what's the mindset? What's the psychology of a runner, of a distance runner versus the psychology, the, the, the kind of default mindset of uh, a, a guy who's in to push a lot of iron? They're, they're different. You know, I, I was in powerlifting in college. I was a weightlifter. And I'm not what I would call by nature a real aggressive guy. I don't have a, I mean, I can be hot tempered, but I'm not walking around, you know, uh, angry. Like, uh, what's the word? Uh, high level of arousal. Like you, like you need to put up a max lift, you know. So uh, lifters, I think, you know, that's the culture. It's like it's just, you know, that way of being that you have to be to approach uh, a max lift is not the same as a runner who's going out for a 20 mile training run. It's not that there's a difference in intent. Well, there is a difference in intensity, but it's, a it's just a different mindset. And so I think when you have runners coming into a, a weightlifting gym, it can be very intimidating for them because they're not used to having to engage that part of themselves. It's just not part of their sport. They don't need it. You know, it's like, the focus that you that you need to run is not the same aggressive focus that you need for a max a one rep max is what is the point I'm trying to make. And so uh, uh, part of my uh, part of my gym culture is that we have runners, we have cyclists, uh, uh, I have some post collegiate elites. I have you know one girl from Czechoslovakia that's training with me. Is they look you know you, and then. For whatever reason, again, most of my weightlifting team is women these days too. And so uh, uh, there's this kind of nice camaraderie between the sports that I've, I've, I've tried to build. And, and I think it's useful for uh, a runner uh, to learn to develop that level of aggression, you know, just to, see, to find it in themselves. It's like, we might max deadlift. We might do, do some max benches. And it's like, look, you're going to have to dig for this. That the, I think the ability to dig in there is a useful psychological skill, even though you don't need it most of the time. But maybe you need it, uh, like, no, I'm not saying this is a, a direct example. But so like we were talking about Nell Rojas earlier. So when she... She won the Boulder Boulder this year, 40 years to the day after her dad won the very first one in 1979. She's coming into the stadium and she thought she had a comfortable lead and boom, this girl comes around her with like, I don't know, 20 meters to go or something like that. And she was just like, she had to dig and she, she won it, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, 
uh, I don't know if the, you know, her, her weightlifting helped her with that. I have to, you know, we talk quite a bit, but I haven't asked her that specific question, but I think she would agree that, that the ability to generate that kind of like, you know, oh no, you don't, you know, <laughs> is a, is a big, is a big part of, uh, of lifting. Uh, you know, you, you get, uh, you know, th that ability to kind of just turn that aggression on and, you know, forget about everything else and go. I know, Sean, what do you, I don't know what you think about any of that, but. I, yeah, I, mean, I think, it, yeah, I mean, definitely is a little bit mindset. And you're, you're right about arousal levels. You, know, you need different arousal levels for different activities. And I think there's certainly that. And, and I do think that uh, while I, I certainly have had my time lifting heavy, heavy reps and doing one rep max singles, I, I rarely do that anymore, but I still right. find that when I'm digging down for, whatever I'm doing, where it's gutting out a 500 meter row, which, you know, is, is a little bit different. I find that background has helped me. I wanted to go back and, and I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I think it's something that, that's interesting and maybe we should talk about is back to kids and kids particularly. Uh, so a couple of misconceptions, you know, one that still some people seem to think is weightlifting is going to somehow stunt the growth of children. It's going to cause growth plate injuries. I mean, that's a misconception from the fifties and sixties where, we saw all the top athletes tended to be shorter and that's just because they were biomechanically selected uh, to be a better athlete. So they assumed that short person lifts weights more means lifting right. weights cause you to be short, which is not at all true. But I, there's a, there's a sports scientist guy by the name of Jan Lemur out of France who's right. doing studies looking at the trajectory of kids that start lifting pre-adolescence. And so these are six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids who start not necessarily Olympic lifting, but they start involving themselves in strength training. And in full disclosure, I've had my kids doing strength training uh, since they've been four or five, you know, and it's not necessarily lifting, you know, weights like we do, but they were engaged in uh, activities, you know, whether it was, you know, throwing medicine balls or jumping or kettlebell swings or, or stuff that they could handle at an early age. Uh, I think it's beneficial. I mean, what is, what is your thought on, on, uh, kids should not lift weights at a certain age. Where, where do you, what do you, what are you seeing uh, clinically in, in your population? Are you seeing kids that started lifting when they were seven and eight, or, or are you shying away from that? Or, or how do we deal with a kid that's, you know, yeah. you've got a kid who's six years old and you want them to, you know, potentially maximize his athletic potential. Where do you start at? Yeah. Well, like it's like I was alluding to uh, with Zach uh, in, in my usual roundabout way. Uh, is that, you know, I, I look at uh, being able to handle yourself in the weight room as a sports skill. It's a practice. It's something like playing the piano or learning to play guitar. It's, uh, 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 it, takes, uh, it takes time and I think, or learning a foreign language. So you're going to be better at it if you start younger. And so I think the, the misconception that parents and maybe their, their uh, uh, well-meaning pediatricians have is that somehow you know kids involved in an organized weight training are being loaded you know inappropriately now maybe that happens but that's not you know that's not how it's supposed to happen so uh, you know uh, the uh, the NSCA uh, even uh, I want to say the International Olympic Committee even has a, a, a white paper out on weight training for for youth and and uh, Richard Blagrove, who's a guy I like a lot, uh, is a British strength and conditioning coach, specializes with uh, uh, endurance athletes. Uh, 
and you know, this is my, my confirmation bias kicking in. It's like, I read his book and it was just like, Oh, I'm doing all those things. And so I was like, so I'm a huge fan of his. Right. And, uh, but he's, he's written some articles for the uh, athletics weekly, which is the British track and field publication. And, uh, and he's, he's super pro uh, getting kids involved early. And I, um, I think if you look at it as it's just another skill set, like people lose their minds when clean and jerk and snatch or they're dangerous. And it's like, well, not really. And, and it's, it's, it's hard because as you know, when you, people have their minds made up and you can present all the facts and it's, it's still very hard to uh, get them to change their mind. But uh, the old Hamill study from, I forget, 1970-something, it looked at uh, uh, both British and it was, it was the uh, British Amateur uh, uh, Weightlifting Association, I think, that sponsored the study. And then it got, it's been published in the NSCA. It's, been, it's, it's out on the internet. You can find it. But uh, it's, uh, it, it compares injury per 100 hours of participation. And so if you look at, like, uh, girls' soccer, you know, statistically, it's a bloodbath. You know, it's like there's like 1.5, 0.15 injuries per every how, you know, it's just, it's, it's enormous. Uh, weight training is like 0. 0.00019 injuries per 100 hours. And if you're looking at competitive weight lifting, it's even lower than that. It's like 0. 0.00017 injuries per 100 hours. So statistically, uh, you know, I, I tell my parents, look, what, we, what we're teaching your kids to do in here in an organized and progressive and supervised way is, is orders of magnitude safer than her running down the runway and jumping into a long jump pit. I know it doesn't seem like that to you, but it's the truth. You know, athlete, uh, track and field is, you know, it's one of those sports that's up there and, and you know, and those are the kids I'm, I'm training a lot. So there's, there is that. And so I've even had an athlete whose mom was a nurse and, and her, uh, her pediatrician was like, well, you know, her growth, growth plates aren't completely closed. And so she shouldn't be doing any lifting whatsoever. And it was just like, yeah, but you've got her throwing herself into, you know, high jump and long jump. You know, so so the, the, the things we used to, you know, do as kids, like uh, unsupervised, running, jumping, playing tag, uh, uh, you know, pick up rugby, pick up baseball, pick up football, you know, just no pads, just beating your brains out from the get-go. I mean, those are things that kids, you know, used to do, and nobody complained about, you know, uh, you know, uh, damaging growth plates and things like that. It was, it was part of growing up. And so I think since things are a little different now, uh, and you got more kids involved in organized sports earlier, I, I definitely think that teaching them how to handle uh, a barbell. Well, uh, just another aside. So there, uh, when I was doing kettlebell sport, uh, one of my friends who went over to Russia to compete came back with this great little magazine. It was partly Russian, translated into English. Uh, I got some of it translated by a friend of mine who spoke. But one of the things that they would do, uh, that, that parts of Russia at least, uh, did at the time, even though the whole system in the Soviet era was you know, cradle to grave fitness, you know, there was something for everybody so they could defend Mother Russia. Um, uh, was that in the, in the middle schools, kids were 
taught uh, how to lift weights as a way to uh, uh, just be functional in life. You know, I was like, here's how you pick up a box. They would do it with kettlebells. And uh, if you go on YouTube and look up power juggling, for example, uh, it's a kettlebell. Uh, it's, it's part of the kettlebell sport. Usually it's like an exhibition thing. It's very acrobatic. It's, uh, it can be, you know, to our taste, probably a little silly and theatrical costuming, but I mean, they're throwing and twirling, throwing kettlebells up overhead, spinning them, catching them behind the back between the legs. There's teams that do it in organized fashion. And so, uh, you know, this article in this magazine was talking about, you know, schools that have kettlebell sport programs for the for the power juggling those kids are way healthier uh, going into life because they learn how to uh, handle an external weight they learn how to receive a force and absorb it and redirect it and you know uh, and how to pick up things safely and so uh, now uh, biologically uh, adaptively uh, you know Lifting a kid lifting uh, is going to have generally better bone density. The farm kids, they didn't worry about their growth plates when they're having to haul grain out to the pigs to feed the pigs, you know, in my hometown. Or they didn't worry about growth plates when they were baling hay and doing all the things that farm kids do. And so, I think you got to look at at weight training as kind of it's just it's just a, a different way of doing manual labor. Right, and so you just want to teach kids how to do it right, and uh, and you don't load them uh, inappropriately. Until, you know, uh, I I'd say you know I the general rule of thumb, and I would tend to agree with this, is that you're not going to build any muscle on a boy until he's out of puberty, in puberty, right? You go, going through puberty, so you need that hormonal base, but you can for sure impact their connective tissue their uh, uh, cartilage, their tendons, their ligaments. Uh, you're gonna be training their uh, uh, neuromuscular system. They're gonna be better coordinated. If you guys run across uh, Franz Bosch, uh, the running coach from uh, Zach, have you, are you familiar with him at all? Yeah, I think a little bit. Yeah, so anyway, uh, he, he kind of comes from, uh, he's a controversial guy. I like his book, it's uh, strength training, and coordination and integrated approach, it's called. And so it's basically, he looks at strength training as coordination training under resistance. And I think that's a pretty sound way to look at it for kids. You're, you're coordination training, but giving them a little resistance. And, uh, and he also kind of comes at it from a dynamic systems uh, uh, viewpoint. Um, uh, and mo you know, like uh, motor learning skill. And so I'm thinking, you know, uh, my specialty is not with kids that young, seven, eight, and nine. Uh, but man, you know, you, you can put a, you know, a wooden dowel. If you, you know, if you're a weightlifter in your house and, and you do the Olympic lifts and you've got a kid that wants to learn how to do the Olympic lifts, you can get, you know, a couple of pieces of plastic disc and a dowel and make him a little barbell or her a little barbell and show them how to snatch, you know, it's like two pounds of resistance if it's that, you know, and, and once they get that skill down, if it's something they want to pursue later on in life, I mean, they, 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 now they don't have to learn how to do it. And that's the, that's the bugaboo, I think, for a lot of strength coaches at the collegiate level is they get kids coming out of programs that don't, uh, 
they don't know how to do the quick lifts, so they don't program them because they're dangerous. The kids hurt themselves. And it's not because it's not because they're inherently dangerous or that the kids will hurt themselves. Um, it's, uh, it's because it's, it's kind of too late for them. You know, when you're a, I don't agree that it's too late for them, but that's how the coaches look at it. If you're a college freshman, you don't know how to clean, jerk and snatch, you're better off doing, you know, deadlifts and squats and bench presses. And, and maybe for most of the kids, that's true. Uh, but I think you can, uh, you can teach them the lifts uh, again in the same progression, uh, light. They learn the technique, and maybe by the time they're a senior, you know, it's really paying dividends. So it, it's uh, it, it just depends on uh, you know that culture, I guess, to, depending on uh, who you have as a strength and conditioning coach and what the program demands are. But um, uh, I had a thread there I wanted to chase, but I've kind of lost it. <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I'll interject that you know I find that you know even even the intermittent even like things like the high pull you know and, and that you know you don't have to worry about the catch I think you get I mean you may debate there may be some debate about how much more does the catch add to that but I still I think just incorporating high pulls is is, is very important in, in the development of a lot of people for that power aspect and you know my kids you know if you look at it you know one of the one of the nice things you know i come from a throwing background because i used to throw heavy things too right and I had a with some of these guys and so being able to release so i find in medicine ball throws and almost done like a snatch from the ground throwing them in high in the air because you get to release you know sure. and, and so you get the same movement pattern that works and i've got i've had my kids at four or five years old taking a three four pound medicine ball and just throwing it up in the air as hard as yeah. they can trying yeah. to get some target on the ceiling which i reinforce with wood so i don't break my ceiling but uh, that was a, to me, a very useful thing, you know, for, like I said, if you're, if you're cause I'm not going to teach my kids how to Olympic lift cause I don't have the background to teach them right. safely. So I would, I'd rather put them in the hands of a, of a decent Olympic lifting coach. But in a, in, as in lieu of that, I can, I can certainly have a kid pick up a three or four pound medicine ball and throw it in the air as hard as he can. He's not likely to get injured, uh, doing it, doing it incorrectly. And it trains a lot of the similar, you know, uh, motor patterns. And so I yeah. think that's a, that's a good proxy in my view. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is that, why do, you know, what the, the overarching uh, uh, sort of uh, why do we choose a particular exercise over another is that you, get, you, you have to have a compelling why for it. You know, you can't just sort of like throw things at uh, a kid, you know, and, or any, any athlete and, uh, and hope it works. You need to have, you know, done some kind of an assessment and what does this person need and is what's the exercise that's most likely to help produce that result. And, and so for, you know, when it comes to the Olympic lifts, I just, and, and, and let's go back kettlebells is Olympic lifts aren't for everybody. Uh, you know, not everybody should do them because they need, you know, like I said, you need a, uh, a certain amount of mobility and flexibility in order to do them safely. Like there's a, there's, and there's a line there where it's just not safe to do them. So you've got a, you know, you've got a 300 pound lineman in college who can't rack uh, a front squat properly. Uh, you know, he probably shouldn't be power cleaning even. He probably should be doing, you know, high pulls like you suggest, because that's a good, it's a, it, it, it's a good in-between exercise. You know, it's not, uh, he'll lose some of the benefit of how to receive and redirect that way. But it's totally unsafe to, you know, uh, catch the try to catch the bar on the collarbones with your elbows down. You know, there's a reason the clean looks the way it looks, and uh, 
Um, it's safer, it beats you up less. And if you can't hit that position because you lack the mobility, either fix the mobility so you can do it or don't do that exercise. So, so I, you know, I, and I, you know, with my master's athletes, that's, I mean, I have guys working with me who are from, you know, 79 years old on down, you know, and, uh, you know, they can do perfectly good deadlifts, but they're a little bit shaky on the explosive stuff. So I tend to not program that for them. So, but. Well, Randy, I think, uh, Zach, if I'm not mistaken, we're, we got to get to another podcast. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure we, we can talk some of this strength training. I love talking about this stuff. I could talk for another six hours on this stuff. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating story. I wish you continued luck with the Wegners and, uh, you know, all the other stuff. And uh, it's, it's, you know, hopefully we'll see continued improvement, remission, uh, whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. This because I think it's a, it's a fascinating story and it, it will inspire more and more people. I've just seen so many people now uh, every day with some autoimmune or some other kind of crazy story that their disease got better by changing the diet and off of the carnivore diet. So it's, it gives me a lot of hope. Uh, you know, even though it's, it's, it's very controversial, but I think there's, I just think we need to continue to, to get these stories out there. I appreciate you yeah. for willing to come forward and share your experience and your knowledge. Yeah, well, I, I didn't originally intend for it to be all about me and my Wegners. And so, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it's kind of on my back burner and I'm not a, uh, but, you know, it's there and it's something that I'm, I'm dealing with. And, uh, you know, uh, I think healthy diet and, uh, uh, you know, trying to maintain some level of, uh, of uh, physical activity is, is good. You know, as we know, uh, exercise has an impact on the uh, immune system. Uh, too much ain't too good, but, you know, the right amount is beneficial and, and uh, as long as you're recovering. And, and it certainly seems to be the case in the, let's call it the vasculitis community, that those who do exercise regularly, like a half an hour minimum a day, you know, uh, goes a long way. I mean, at least in the mental well-being department, if uh, not the, the actual uh, uh, you know, improvement in their, their health status. But it seems to be the case that most people do see some you know, benefit beyond, you know, losing weight and fitting into the pants. It actually helps with their disease, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think exercise, sleep, diet, all these things, and there's probably a few other things out there, lifestyle that can make a huge difference. Randy, let folks know where they can sort of follow you, get a hold oh, of you. Sure. They want to, want to contact you for coaching with their kids or whatever. If they want yeah. To do some well, stuff people know. well, they can either go to barbellstrategy.com, which is the gym I'm based out of in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, they can email me directly at randy at barbellstrategy.com. That's fine. Uh, I have a little blog that uh, I started keeping again called In and Out of the Chalk Bucket. Uh, there's a, actually, there's a, a guest post by my uh, Czech pro steeplechaser uh, uh, exactly on why she's six foot four <laughs> and uh, why she didn't start weight training until uh, uh, she was an older adult because she was told that it would stunt her growth. Uh, but now that she's six foot four, she's not worried about it. <laughs> So, but so that's a in and out uh, in and out of the chalk bucket. That's a it's a blogger uh, blog. I think the the address is actually zentrophy.blogspot.com. But uh, I'm not on Instagram at the moment. I am on Facebook. Uh, Barbell Strategy has a page on Facebook. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to get in touch. And I 
I can use some athletes. So, so you know, we got cross country coming up. <laughs> cool. we got weightlifting meets coming up. Yeah. <laughs> well, Randy, we'll definitely link that stuff to the show notes too. So listeners, especially ones from the Boulder area can check it out and hopefully get in touch with you. But thanks again for giving us so much of your time today. You're welcome. I hope it wasn't too rambly. No, no I think it was good. <laughs> Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.